Well, today we're continuing in chapter 22 of religious worship and the Sabbath day. Um, we began looking last week at paragraphs 3 and 4 on prayer. We only really got through 3, and we're not even going to finish 3 today. Um, but both 3 and 4 have to do with prayer. We saw last week that just as mankind is obligated by virtue of being a creature to worship his creator God, just as mankind is obligated to do good works, being under the moral law of God, though he cannot in his natural state do them, so also prayer, paragraph 3 states, is by God required of all men. All men, women, children, unbelievers, believers have a duty to pray to God. Not all men can offer prayer that will be heard and accepted as the prayers of believers are, just as they cannot do good works that will be accepted or offer worship that will be accepted, but there is still a duty and an obligation to pray. After this, we touched upon what, what I confess was a bit of a rabbit trail. Um, sometimes I see something in the week and it, it makes me go down a rabbit trail, and that's what happened last week. Um, we considered the, the connection between the idea that man is um, obligated universally to worship or even pray to God, um, and the connection between that and what is called the, the uh, sincere os, uh, offer of the gospel, the free offer of the gospel, where um, the gospel is not only told um, to sinners, we don't just describe what Christ did, but then we give an invitation or even a call, not not walking the aisle, but repent and believe. We, we say that um, to, to a crowd of people, not knowing who the elect are um, at all. Um, surprisingly, there is historically a connection between those two ideas, although you might not think so it's at first. Um, we saw, especially in our own tradition, the, the particular Baptist, or maybe by this time they called themselves the strict Baptists, um, in England, there's a strict, strict Baptist historical society. And you go like, whoa, sounds really, really bad. Um, but those are our guys, pretty much. So in America, they went by the regular Baptists. There's all these kind of names. It's all the same thing. Well, that's a bit of an overstatement. Very similar things, okay? More or less the particular Reformed Baptists. But we saw that especially in this tradition, really developing in the 1700s, um, there was a very strong move towards hyper-Calvinism. Uh, and in my opinion, this was just, it was an overreaction um, against the deism that was growing up all around them um, in the Enlightenment, Arminianism, so Sinianism, which is make, was making inroads in society at that time. Um, and it seems that Calvinism in general at that time was, what they thought was Calvinism was of the hyper-Calvinist flavor um, as I said, this manifested itself uh, with the idea, for example, uh, of justification from all eternity, um, that not only did God decree to justify the elect from all eternity, but that he did, in fact, justify uh, the elect from all eternity. And so this means that um, when the Christian finally has faith um, or, or when they are converted, so to speak, it's not really their moment when they are translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but it's the moment they realize that they have been saved. Um, and I guess if they've been justi justified from eternity, they'd never been lost, which is kind of an interesting concept too. Um, but anyway, 
Um, that was very much propounded by John Gill. Um, I love John Gill. I think he's wrong on that. John Brine, another one of his friends. Um, the hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, um, he was convinced of that position. It was just kind of a common form of Calvinism in the 1700s. When it came to giving what is referred to as the free offer of the gospel, especially an invitation or a call to repent and believe, they did not believe that any such call should be given at all. God did not, in fact, um, offer salvation to sinners. He simply gave it to them. Furthermore, the covenant of grace was conditionless, they argued, and I would agree, but not exactly how they formulate it. And so to say, repent and believe the gospel and you shall be saved, was to them to turn the covenant of grace into a covenant of works. Um, <clears throat> we do say there are no conditions, if you consider it um, from, from the perspective that it's, it's gracious, it's on the merits of Christ, he earned it. Um, it does have conditions if you look at how it's received. In that sense, it has conditions, and that's, that's more a historic reformed way to say it, but they rejected that. <clears throat> Just to quote Gill, actually, he says, salvation is not offered at all by God upon any condition whatsoever to any of the sons of men. No, not to the elect. They are chosen to it. Christ has procured it for them. The gospel publishes and reveals it, and the Spirit of God applies it to them, but it is not offered to the elect, much less to the non-elect or to all mankind. Now, just to clarify, they would evangelize. They weren't opposed to evangelism and the sharing and spreading of the gospel to the unbelievers, but it was that last part, the, the come to Jesus and, begin, and, and believe and you shall be saved. They, they didn't do that at all. Well, as we saw last week, um, while there's a lot of things that we could say in response to that, the main one is that simply by virtue of man's being a creature, every man, woman, and child has a duty and obligation to receive whatever God reveals because he's God. Whether you're the elect or non-elect, there's still an obligation. They won't be able to do it apart from the enabling of the Spirit, just as they can't pray in a way that's acceptable, just as they can't do good works, just as they can't worship in any way that's acceptable, as our confession of faith says. Nevertheless, there is a duty. We see this in all kinds of ways, namely the fact that to reject the gospel, to reject Christ, is a great sin, which implies it's an obligation that they've turned away from. When Christ sends the disciples to preach the kingdom and the good news, he tells them in Matthew 10, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Why will it be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah? Because they'd never heard the gospel. They only knew of God's existence from nature. They'd never actually had Christ himself come and preach to them. They are responsible for the knowledge that they did have and that they rejected. But for those with a greater knowledge who know of the gospel by Christ himself, not just a knowledge of the law, but of the gospel, they receive a greater punishment. Why? Because even they are called to receive anything that God reveals. Well, having come the, 
the end of that rabbit trail, we then proceeded to look more positively at prayer in general. We saw, for example, um, a huge part of prayer is thanksgiving. We talked about that, how we are to give thanks in our prayers. Um, And we also talked about how prayer is to be done with the understanding. Um, Our mind is to be present um, when we do it. Um, But with that, we really ended our look at paragraph three. I'd like us to pick up again and move on, hopefully, uh, through a good chunk of paragraph three today. Uh, If you will, if you have your confession, turn with me to chapter 22, paragraph three. We'll read through it, and then we'll walk through it again. says, prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship is by God required of all men, but that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. Let's go ahead and walk through this. Um, What I'd like to look at first is something I actually said last week I skipped over when I was kind of working on this. And it was kind of the middle phrase where it says, but that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit according to His will. I actually kind of accidentally skipped over that last time and jumped straight into understanding um, we'll, we'll get back, but I want to cover that stuff that I skipped first. So first, it says, in order for prayer to be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son. On the one hand, this is why we end our prayers mostly with, with the phrase, in Jesus' name we pray. Um, often, whenever I pray, kind of whenever, whenever I pray, um, I'll end it in some kind of way like that, in the name of Christ we pray, something with some kind of allusion um, to the Son. On the other hand, to pray in the name of the Son is so much more than merely saying the name of Jesus at the end of a prayer. When I was a kid, I don't know if someone taught me this, maybe in like a Sunday school, or if this is simply what I understood. What I thought of in my mind was um, I heard someone say, well, your prayers won't be accepted unless they're in the name of Jesus, right? The way I thought of that was it was like putting a stamp on a letter. It won't get sent. God won't receive this if you don't say the phrase at the very end, in Jesus' name we pray. Um, That's not really at all what we mean when we talk about prayers having to be in the name of the Son to be acceptable, Um, When we say, in Jesus' name, at the end of the prayer, it's a good um, reminder of something, but those are not a magical incantation that we say that all of a sudden the Father, it's it's not like clicking send uh, on an email or something, that God's like, oh, okay, now I hear it. Oh, did you get my prayer, God? Oh, I didn't get it. Did you say in Jesus' name? No, sorry, it's it's not how it works. In fact, there are prayers in the New Testament, Peter, for example, Um, where they don't say, in the name of Jesus we pray. I would say that's actually something you don't typically see in Scripture, even in the New Testament. Um, They mention praying by his mediation and all that, but you don't really see it 
tagged on at the end of prayers. Um, not to say that that's not a good thing to do, um, but it's, it's also not necessary. And nevertheless, though, I would say that they are still praying in the name of the Son. Okay? How? Well, to pray in the name of the Son, I would say, means to pray by faith, trusting the mediatorship of Jesus Christ to the Father. That's what it really means. That's why you don't, you don't have to say, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, if, you, if you, by faith, are praying to the Father, trusting in Jesus alone, you are praying in the name of the Son. It is to trust him in his righteousness that we shall be heard on the basis of his merits and that we won't be shut out because of our sins. Calvin writes, Since no man is worthy to come forward in his own name and appear in the presence of God, our Heavenly Father, to relieve us at once from fear and shame which all must, uh, with which all must feel oppressed, has given us his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, to be our advocate and mediator. Under his guidance, we may approach securely, confident with him for our intercessor. Nothing that we ask in his name will be denied to us, as there is nothing that the Father can deny to him. To this, it is necessary to refer all that we have previously taught concerning faith, because as the promise gives us Christ as our mediator, so unless our hope of obtaining what we ask is founded on him, it deprives us of the privilege of prayer. For it is impossible to think of the dread majesty of God without being filled with alarm. Hence, the sense of our own unworthiness must keep us far away until Christ interpose and convert a throne of dreadful glory into a throne of grace. That's what it really means. Um, to, to come to the Father, not on your own merits, and yet to still come boldly. Why? Because of Christ's merits, right? He has made a way. Um, and you may say or you may not say, in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Um, and yet if you have trusted in Christ as your mediator to come to the Father, um, then you, you have prayed in the name of the Son. This is also why the prayers of others who do not pray in the name of Jesus, meaning by faith through his mediatorship alone, their prayers shall never be received because they, they essentially come in their own name, as Calvin says, um, or they come in the name of someone else whom God has not appointed as a mediator, and so their prayers shall not be heard. It is rather by the mediatorship of Christ alone. Next, paragraph 3 says, the acceptable way of prayer is, quote, by the help of the Spirit. By the help of the Spirit. What exactly does that mean, especially for us as cessationists? What does that mean? We don't want to get all loosey-goosey here. Um, I feel the Spirit leading me. I'm not trying to mock those people. I, I grew up in that, and you're kind of like, I feel like the Lord's telling me, Something about a spoon? Anybody getting anything about a spoon? And people are like, I lost a spoon two weeks ago. And you're like, the Lord encouraged you in the loss of your spoon. I don't know. Um, maybe you had to be there. That, maybe many of you have been in situations like that. Um, nevertheless, um, relying on the Spirit, even praying in the Spirit, not just by the help of the Spirit, but 
in the Spirit is a very biblical thing to do. That's not for loosey-goosey continuationists or something like that. We, too, as Reformed people, we pray in the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18, Paul exhorts the Ephesians to pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Jude, verse 20, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. It's not at all a Pentecostal thing. It's a biblical thing to pray in the Holy Spirit. What exactly does that mean to pray in the Spirit? I think our confession partly answers that in its own wording, that it is to pray with the help of the Spirit. The Spirit gives enabling, so to speak, but I do think there's more that we could say about it. Thomas Manton uh, gives a very helpful explanation in his commentary on the book of Jude, where he expounds Jude verse 20. He says that to pray in the Holy Spirit has respect both, quote, to acceptance and assistance. Acceptance and assistance. He says, with respect to acceptance, God will own nothing in prayer but what what cometh from his Spirit. Any other voice is strange and barbarous to him. Romans 8.27, he knoweth the mind of the Spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of the Lord. This is where he says this. I didn't, what he says next, I thought was funny. The Lord delighteth not in the flaunting and unsavory belches of a human spirit. The psalmist saith in Psalm 141-2, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. Now the censers were to be kindled with holy fire before the smoke went up. The coal wherewith we are kindled must be taken from the altar, not from a common hearth, and then our prayer goeth up as incense. Fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice was the solemn token of acceptance heretofore. Fire from heaven is the token still, even a holy ardor wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. See, even Puritans can talk about fire from heaven, right? That's not just like a more contemporary kind of worship thing. Um, But the point is, Um, There's a way in which um, the Spirit makes acceptable our prayers to the Father, not in some some ways as though Christ's uh, work of mediation or his merits lack anything, um, but that he kind of takes our our prayers um, and partly intercedes uh, through those and presents them to the Father. Next, in point of assistance, and this is really more explicitly what our confession is talking about, I thought it was a really good point. Prayer is a work too hard for us. We can babble of ourselves, but we cannot pray without the Holy Ghost. We can put words into prayer, but it is the Spirit who puts affections into our prayers, without which it is a li- but a little cold prattle and spiritless talk. Our necessities and wants may sharpen our prayers, but they cannot enliven them. Surely, if we did consider what prayer is, we should see the need of this assistance from the Spirit. It is a work which will cost us travail of heart. It is described as a striving. It is a striving with God himself, and there is no striving with God but by his own strength. I thought that was a really good point. I'll, I confess to you, 
I think the thing that my flesh hates the most is prayer. Um, that's the hardest. I have to truly be in the Spirit to really do that. Um, I can even read my Bible at times, but to really settle my heart to stop and pray, um, oh man, the flesh really hates that, and I, I need the enabling of the Holy Spirit to do so. Um, so the Spirit empowers us, it gives us the enabling to speak. Um, further, I would say, um, in, not in any kind of revelatory way, um, but in just kind of a normal sense, the Spirit also guides us in prayer. Um, I think it's perfectly acceptable to pray for wisdom from the Spirit to, to enable me to know how to pray. Um, we don't mean anything like special revelation, just as we might say, um, kind of, Lord, enable me to understand your word, right, by the Spirit. Give me, give me wisdom in life or things like that. Um, the Lord gives that wisdom. And so also, I think in that sense, um, it's good to ask, to begin our prayers. Um, I pray for the Spirit to come and enable me and to guide me um, to know how I ought to pray. Um, the Spirit helps us in that. And the Spirit does intercede in that sense for us. Next, the confession says we are to pray according to God's will for it to be acceptable. According to God's will. This is a very important feature of prayer in Scripture. Um, prayers which are according to God's will are those that are heard. 1 John 5.14 And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. By contrast, prayers that are not according to God's will will not be heard, or rather answered by God. Not only does James reprove the Jewish Christians for not praying in general, but also for not praying according to God's will. He explains that this is, in fact, why God is not answering their prayers. He says in James 4, 2 through 3, you do not have because you do not ask, so you're not praying in general, or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Praying according to God's will is very, very important. It's part of a, a crucial element of our prayers being heard. Because of this, and because the will of God is revealed to us in the Scriptures, there is a very intimate link between prayer and the Holy Scriptures. Um, and the Puritans are, are very big even on just simply praying Scripture in general. You have no better way to pray according to God's will than to pray his will revealed in the word. Um, I quoted this not too long ago in a sermon, but I just it's such a pithy saying by William Gurnall in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor. He says, prayer is nothing but the promise reversed, or God's word formed into an argument and retorted by faith upon God again. Um, that's so true. If, if you want to pray according to God's will, you must first and foremost be acquainted with his will as revealed in the scriptures and even go so far um, as to take the scripture itself and form it, form the promise into a plea, he says. However, I would say that to pray according to God's will does not just speak to the content 
of our prayers. It doesn't speak necessarily only to the content of our specific requests, whether a certain request be lawful or not. That's a huge part of it. But I would say to pray according to God's will still means something more. I would say first and foremost, praying according to God's will speaks not so much to the content of our prayers, but the posture and desire of our hearts. It is to, to desire to see God's will accomplished, to, think, to see all things submitted to that will. I would say that this is why the Lord himself teaches us in the Lord's Prayer to begin with, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's interesting, if you notice in the Lord's Prayer, um, the first three uh, kind of petitions, they all have to do with God, your, right? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Only after that does it switch to the hours. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. It goes to that but first and foremost, the desire of the heart of the Christian is to be a desire for God's will, for his kingdom, for his name to be hallowed. Because of this, I would say that when we pray according to God's will, it's not simply to pray for lawful things. You can pray for lawful things, but your heart might not actually be desiring God's will in that moment. You might actually be praying for something that is technically lawful, um, but your heart might actually not be submitted to God in that moment. Calvin comments on the phrase, your will be done in the Lord's Prayer. He says, in presenting this request, we renounce the desires of the flesh because he who does not entirely resign his affections to God does as much as in him lies to oppose the divine will since everything that proceeds from us in that state is sinful. Again, by this prayer, we are taught to deny ourselves that God may rule us according to his pleasure. And not only so, but also having annihilated our own desires may create new thoughts and new minds so that we shall have no desire save that of entire agreement with his will. In short, we are taught to wish nothing of ourselves but have a heart governed by his spirit under whose inward teaching we may learn to love those things that please him and hate those things that displease him. Hence also, we must desire that he would fully nullify and suppress all affections that are repugnant to his will. That's what it truly means um, to pray according to, to the will of the Father, um, to have a desire that, that his will would be our own, uh, that, that the things that he desires to have come to pass, that we would have those desires as well. Um, if you're truly not willing those things. You're not praying according to his will as well. Well, that's the last portion of the section that I said I kind of skipped over. Uh, I want to continue on where, where we left off last week, looking at the last phrase of paragraph three. And uh, I'll read it again just real quickly. Um, it says that prayer is to be made, quote, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervence, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. Well, when we continued or considered this last week, 
we looked at what it means that prayer is to be made with understanding. Um, moving on after that, let's consider what it means that prayer is to be made with reverence. Um, I will only say that what this means is that we are to pray reverently. Um, in many ways, it is, it is simply the third commandment applied to prayer. Um, the Baptist Catechism says, question 60, what is required in the third commandment? Answer, the third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, words, and works. Well, prayer fits in the ordinances section of that. Um, God has ordained prayer as an ordinance, and so we treat it reverently in keeping with the third commandment. I think that when it comes to reverence, there are two ways in which we can err. Um, and I think in order to understand the, the two errors that we want to avoid, um, we first should consider the reform distinction, the confessional distinction, really, um, between a slavish fear and a filial or childlike fear. Now, those are not the two errors. Okay, one of those is right, one of those is wrong. But we'll use those two categories um, to, to kind of help us understand the two errors, okay? First, you have a, a slavish fear. Scripture speaks of um, being in bondage. It's also part of being under the law. You're a slave. You're not a freeborn. You have the fear of being under the law. It's a fear of punishment, a fear of God as judge and being cast out. A filial, just comes from Latin for son, childlike fear, um, is a love. It's a respect. It's an awe, um, a reverence even, but it's not so much a fear of wrath. It's not a fear, uh, any kind of fear in which there's a question of the Father's love for you. It's not that kind of a fear. That is a slavish fear. For example, our confession says in chapter 21, of the Christian liberty that Christ has won for us, he said partly, it consists in, quote, our free access to God and yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and a willing mind. Now, the two errors that we want to avoid in terms of reverence are these. First, in prayer, we want to avoid anything that looks like slavish fear, in the sense that we fear to come into God's presence. It is to believe that God is still wrathful. Maybe Christ didn't fully atone for all of my sins. Maybe he made a way, but I need to still be really careful. God might cast me out of his throne room as soon as I enter, right? I took the boldly part a little too literally. You're not supposed to be that bold in your love for God. Um, it's okay to fear um, being cut off. I've, I've talked to several people over the years, and you kind of wrestle with them over this thing, and they're Calvinists, so they know you're saved, and you don't need to, they know you can have assurance of faith, um, and yet at the very end they go, but I still think there's a place for fearing you might essentially go to hell. Um, and you're like, no, that's, no, um, we don't have 99.9% .9 assurance um, and then like just a little bit to balance out because you don't want to have too much assurance in God's love because God's love will really make you do crazy things, right? Um, 
No, we can have an infallible assurance uh, of our salvation, the confession says. But they, they always say it that way, and I would say it is, to, um, it is to bring in, again, a little bit of slavish fear. It is really, in many ways, to pray not in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying they're not saved, um, but it is not to fully trust in his advocacy. It is not to fully trust in all that he has purchased for us, that his merits were truly powerful enough to fully secure the love of the Father for us. Um, slavish fear and praying in the name of, of the Son, uh, those two things, one casts out the other. Um, and so um, we want to avoid that. You never want to pray as though you're at the foot of Mount Sinai, but rather at the foot of Mount Zion. Um, nevertheless, I think there are those, maybe because they're not strong in gospel grace, Maybe they're not taught. They think you need to balance out God's love with his holiness. Um, or maybe it's an overreaction against all the kind of um, irreverency that we see in a lot of modern Christian stuff. The sloppy wet kiss kind of stuff, right? If you know what I'm talking about. Um, I think maybe some people overreact. But you don't want to in any way have a fear of God that somehow discounts the mediatorship of Christ um, or in any way which sees him more as just judge and not father. Um, God chose that analogy for a reason. Because your, you know, kids are to have a respect for their parents, but there is still an intimacy there. And we don't, we don't pray out of a slavish fear. Okay? On the other hand, on the other hand, the second error that we want to reject is any kind of, it's a rejection of any kind of reverence whatsoever. Um, whereas slavish fear sees any kind of confidence or intimacy as a lack of reverence, right? It kind of conflates, conflates the two. With this other error, it sees confidence and intimacy as the polar opposite of fear and reverence. The first conflates reverence with slavish fear, the second thing's intimacy is utterly, utterly opposed to any kind of reverence. It sees all fear whatsoever as bad. Notice, we do still argue for a fear. Not a slavish fear, but a filial fear. Okay? Part of me wonders if this is a product uh, of the society uh, in which we live in. Um, you know, there's, there's partly even now, there's very little respect for parents um, or, or even just the idea that your parent is like something to not be treated like you are. Like parents are very much peers. Um, you'll often kind of hear like, oh man, my kids teach me more than I teach my kid. I am more, I, I, more than I teach my kids. Um, God has taught me a lot through parenting, but Carlos eats his boogers sometimes. I teach him, okay? Um, he's not teaching me a whole lot in that regard um, no, we're not peers. I love him. He can jump on me. We're not peers, though. I'm his father. Um, you know, Anika and I, talking to Anika about this this last week, um, Anika has a, a family member that we love, and uh, she argues for, um, have you ever heard of gentle parenting? You guys ever heard of that? Gentle parenting? Some people are laughing. Some parents are like, you talked about this this morning? Okay. Um, 
from what I've heard, from the ones I've heard, they do not advocate spanking of any kind. Um, it's very much a reasoning with children. You're reasoning with the ones who eat their boogers. Okay, so anyway. Um, you're showing them the negatives and the positives, um, which, I mean, there's a place for that, right? You don't want to, like, just only have the rod. Um, but there's kind of a, I would say, I feel misrepresented in my own position, um, even by the language of gentle parenting, right? The, the implication is harsh parenting, mean parenting. Um, but Annika has a cousin, and she's, we love them, and she talked... And we said, you know, I, I said, well, what about like the passages in Proverbs? It says, you know, don't, don't save the rod or spoil, uh, spare the rod, right? And they say, well, that's a shepherding rod. It's, it's kind of gentle. You don't, you're not, you're guiding gently. Um, the problem with that is it's very, rods are for the backs of fools often in the Proverbs. <laughs> um, they're not guiding fools. They're, it's a switch, right? Um, also, it, you know, it says Proverbs 14, 3, or I'm sorry, Proverbs 23, 13, do not withhold discipline from a child if you strike him with a rod. That means to hit. Uh, I even told Annika this morning, it's kind of funny. Um, that term can be used to, to talk about killing someone. Um, God struck him, struck him dead, right? Um, we don't kill our children. In fact, the rest of the Proverbs says he will not die if you do it. Um, but it's not just this gentle thing. Um, not always. A lot of sometimes it is right. You're, there is a part of reasoning too, um, but but you don't you don't withhold the striking either. Um, but if you think about that as just kind of symptomatic of the West in general right now, of like very much like you don't do that. That's not gracious. Um, very much. How would you like to be treated? Um, and, and you have anything then, you start talking about fearing God, that's very foreign to a lot of us, uh, to a lot of people in the West, right? Um, it's funny, in fact, I, I saw this, this woke thing online, and the implication that it was pushing for was that harsh parenting was a white Christian thing. Um, it was for the white colonizers. Uh, and then I laughed because I was like, I don't know, man. Mexican parents really spank their kids. <laughs> um, black parents have no fear of going, giving some whoopings and stuff. If, if anything, honestly, the West, Europe, is the easiest in terms of discipline on children, right? It's just kind of, it just shows how the West is like, it like hates itself right now. It like can't, uh, it's at war with itself. Um, everywhere else in the world, though, you're talking Asia, most Latin America, Africa, all that stuff, kids get whoopings. And there is a difference. There is a real respect that children have. There's love. It's not a lack of love, but there's also this respect and reverence that is had. Um, and that is something that we are to have as, as Christians. Um, and so there's intimacy. We, won't, we don't want to introduce slavish fear, um, but there is still also reverence. There, there is a creator-creature distinction still. He is our heavenly Father God, but he's still God, the incomprehensible one, and we are not. And so there's a respect there, um, and, and we are too. Personally, I, I, I don't know. I would avoid daddy language in prayer. 
Um, I think one of my favorite memes that like it like killed me is it showed, I have to explain it, it showed, you know, the Shiba Inu is always in memes, right? And it was this buff Shiba Inu, and it was like, it was like singing a, a hymn, like riches I heed not or something. And then it showed a, a weak Shiba Inu, and it says, give me smoochies, daddy God. Um, that's a lot of the kind of worship that you'll hear. I know Gloria has said several times, if it sounds like you're singing something to a boyfriend or girlfriend, it probably shouldn't be sung to God, right? Um, I get it. Song of Solomon, a picture of, bri- uh, of Christ and his bride. I get it, right? On the other hand, you don't want to fall into irreverence. Um, if anything, the Puritans are such a great example of this because, you know, sometimes they can, they can preach about Christ and his bride and this intimate love between them in such a powerful way, and yet they never lose the reverence, right? We're to have both. Um, and so with that, we, we do still fear God, but it's not a slavish fear. 2 Corinthians 7.1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 1 Peter 2.17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I think my favorite statement in all of scripture about the fear of the Lord is in Isaiah, where it says of the, the Messiah, his delight is in the fear of God. Um, it's a delight and a joy to fear and worship and reverence God to the Messiah. Um, in heaven, in glory, we will forever fear God, not as slaves, as his children, but there's still a reverence that's to be had in prayer. Well, with that, let's go ahead and, and we'll stop there for now. Um, we'll continue next week going through all those things. As I said, at this point in its discussion on prayer, it's, it's getting much, uh, it's not going after Rome as much, it's going after our own hearts. And so uh, we will continue to do that, but you guys are just...